Hey, everybody. Welcome. It's Sunday afternoon, evening, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's Reading Sunday. This is the day we get that I get to read a book to you guys live on the air. Boy, lots going on today. I actually got to work today, which was nice. It's been a, it's been a rough day. My day was I went to work this morning, got back around 545, did a guest spot on another show, and I'll be announcing that later in the week. And now I'm doing this show. But then I come to find out that there's a lot of bad things going on in my neighborhood. My neighborhood's always been fairly quiet. And the last couple months, and you know, coming up to Crescendo, you know, people are breaking into cars. They're, taking, they're stealing catalytic converters. They're taking people's mail. They're taking people's packages. I mean, it's just, it's just insanity, you know? And uh, I'm afraid to leave anything out front, frankly. It's just, it's just horrible. Or to have anything out front or delivered or anything like that because it's bad. It's bad out there. And uh, I'm forever checking my car all night long because you never know. Anyway, welcome. My name is Charlotte. I'll be your host for the next hour or so. We're going to be reading. This, this is what I call reading Sunday. We're going to give people time to come in to be able to join us. That's why we're starting a half hour later. We used to do this from 6 to 7, but we're starting a half hour later now to give people a chance to finish their dinners or do whatever. And they can sit down and be, be read to. <laughs> we've had some real good authors too you know john j john g fuller we've done uh, you know just just different just different authors but uh, oh sorry <laughs> oh it's been a long day you know i'm still working i've been i've been up since like five anyway i'm the uh, owner of the california haunts paranormal investigation team based out of sacramento california you can find us at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com, and you can also find the paranormal team at, Cal at CaliforniaHaunts.org. See lots of California haunts in there. Anyway, um, uh, my team is 45 strong up and down the state of California. So if you have a if you think you have a paranormal issue, give us a, shoot, shoot me an email, a PM, or whatever on Facebook or even on the radio site, and we'll come out and check it out. And the beautiful part of it is because we have so many members uh, stretched up and down the state. We can get to you just about anywhere in this state and Oregon, Washington, and Nevada. And Hawaii. Yeah, I almost forgot about Hawaii. But anyway, I hope everybody's had, had everybody had a great weekend. I did. Yesterday was relaxing. Today, like I said, I worked and then uh, did another radio piece and did this radio piece. And then here I am doing this one. First day of the week. And as you know, we're now going sun, um, Sunday through Friday. We've added Nancy Matt, uh, medium Nancy Matts onto our Friday shows. So that's going to be interesting. And here's a heads up for you. Excuse me. Uh, next Friday, we're going to, rather this week sometime, Nancy is going to do a past life regression on me. And I'll have the results for you on Friday. So you guys can check that out if you're interested. Uh, Saturday, I'm going to be teaching a, psychic a basic psychic development class. Let me get this adjusted a little bit. Sure, I'm not up on top of it yet. Every time I'm up there, it hurts. A basic psychic development class. And what this class you know, what this class shows you is how to open and close that psychic door. Because a lot of the time, when, once you open it, even a crack, not everything nice comes through. And so I teach you how to control that to open and close the door. I also take you to your spirit library. You meet your spirit guide. You meet your spirit animal. And you, you, you meet your spirit object. As well as if you have health problems. You can meet your spirit health guide. So I will be teaching you all that next weekend. So if you're interested in that, visit the California Hunts page at meetup.com and sign up there. And that will be next Saturday at 11 a.m. Pacific. So as we wait for people, it's I've been talking about the weather all week and today's no exception. Well, we topped off at 90. It was supposed to be 95. It topped off at 90. But still, you know, anything above 82 for me. Forget it. All right. I like it nice and breezy and spring-like or ocean-like. You know, I call it Hawaii weather. That's what I like. That's what I prefer. But it's not always like that. So at least it's cool. It, it was somewhat cool today. We got some great guests coming up for you this week. Jim Matlock is going to be back with us tomorrow. He had some issues with his uh, video feed last time he was on. So he's back and he's going to be coming in by phone tomorrow. And he's going to be talking about reincarnation and past lives. So we're going to get to, get to talk to him. So I'm excited about that. Uh, we got, so we're going to be talking about all kinds of topics this week. And I'm really excited to look, I'm looking forward to it. 
Anyhow, again, my name is Charlotte. I'll be your host for the next, excuse me, hour or so. And I got a text message coming in. Excuse me for a minute. Just let me. Anyway, uh, so I'll be reading this book. I was going to add some photos this time, but uh, you know, I'm, uh, like I said, I'm a journalist, photojournalist. So as I was looking through the photos, I didn't want to get any, any copyright issues. You know, I was even checking out online different photos, and I just didn't want to get any hassle. So I didn't want the men in black at my at my front door, or the men in green being the sheriff's department or anything like that at my front door. So we're not going to do photos, but. Uh, it's, so far, it's an interesting book. You know, we're, we're learning a lot about Lizzie Borden as a child, you know, what she was like and, and how she was when she was growing up. And, you know, and, and we're in and, and more in-depth stuff about the, the, the deed she did, the murder. You know, so it's an interesting book. So I'm going to go ahead and get started here. And uh, power up my Samsung Note here, Samsung Galaxy Note. But uh, it's been an interesting weekend, to say the least. Never boring, never boring at my house. <laughs> Just give me a minute here. Okay, here we go. And last week we got to chapter four. I don't know how far we'll get today. We might go longer. We'll see how we do. I don't want to get too overheated in here because uh, I, I'm not putting the air on because it makes a horrible sound behind me when I'm when I'm reading. Oh, let me get this going. But I'm glad to be here. I enjoy doing the show. And you can find us on TikTok now. Just type in California Haunts and you'll find us on TikTok now. We got stuff going on, man. I'm cranking out videos. Kindle, see? Again, I did this last week too. Anybody knows where I can get a new tablet, I'd be really happy. This one, this one's maxed. You know, I can't do it much more on this one. Anyway, chapter four is called Something Wicked This Way Comes. And this book is written by Rebecca. I'm having like total brain farts today, right? Oh, Re Rebecca F. Pittman. God, I'm having a horrible day. So here we go. Um, the spring and summer months of 1892, of 1892, leading up to the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden, were fraught with strange occurrences and disclosures. The threatening clouds hanging over the house at 92 Second Street were as prevalent as the industrial smoke from the mills skirting Fall River. The pressure was building, and it was apparent to those that in the Borden's inner circle something was about to blow. In March of that year, Mrs. Hannah Gifford measured Lizzie for an outer garment. She had been creating capes, cloaks, and sacks for the Borden ladies for seven or eight years. During the trial in June of 1893, Mrs. Gifford was asked to state a conversation between herself and Lizzie Borden that occurred in March of 1892 while she was working on a sack for Lizzie. A sack is a short, loose, okay, parentheses. A sack is a short, loose-fitting coat for women and children. Knowlton. Now, Mrs. Gifford, will you state the talk, what you said and what she said? Gifford. I was speaking to her of a garment I, I made for Mrs. Borden. And instead of saying Mrs. Borden, I said mother. And she says, don't say that to me, for she is a mean, good-for-nothing thing. I said, oh, Lizzie, you didn't mean that. And she said, yes, I don't have much to do with her. I stay in my room most of the time. And I said, you come down to, you come down to your meals, don't you? And she said, yes, but we don't eat with them if we, can, if we can help it. And that was all that was said. In April 1892, only four months before the murder, someone broke into the barn at the Borden residence. 
Bridget, the housekeeper, testified it was at night. That something was taken, that something was taken was addressed during her preliminary hearing testimony a few weeks after the murder. Mr. Adams, for the defense, within a few months of the murders, the barn was broken into, and something was taken or tried to be taken out of that. So far as you know, Bridget, yes, sir. Adams, has the barn been broken into more than once? It has been twice, has it not? Bridget, I don't remember. Adams, you only remember once? Bridget, yes, sir. Lizzie told Miss Al Lizzie told Miss Alice Russell about the barn break-ins on the night before the murders. Alice said it was just teenage boys up to mischief trying to steal the pigeons. What is what is telling about the above testimony with Bridget is the cagey way the question to her from Mr. Adams is presented. Mr. Adams, something was taken or tried to be taken out of that, so far as you know. Nine pages of Bridget's, uh, uh, Bridget's preliminary hearing testimony are missing from the time the prosecutor, Mr. Knowlton, is questioning her. Her entire inquest testimony has been missing since the Superior Court trial in June of 1893. The testimony she gives Mr. Adams during cross-examination concerning the break-in corresponds to the questions from the missing nine pages of the preliminary hearing that were under direct examination. If you look at the way the question to her by Mr. Adams is phrased, you can infer that when the question was first asked of her in the missing pages under direct examination by Knowlton, it was probably objected to. If the something taken from the barn had been pigeons, then why not say pigeons? Why the cloak and dagger? But if the something had a more ominous meaning, such as a hatchet, that, that is something that would be objected to. The break-in was in April, and the defense would have objected to any object which could be constructed as relating to the murders by saying it was too removed in time from the murders, an excuse they had used before the diffuse ticking bombs. Before to defuse, I'm sorry, before the diffuse ticking bombs. Bridget's answer of yes, sir, when asked if something was taken, shows she had knowledge that a burglary had occurred. Let's see what, let us see just what might have happened. Andrew was a shrewd businessman who never missed an opportunity to make a buck. He sold vinegar and other sundries from his cellar and was known to peddle eggs from his farm on the downtown street, something which caused Lizzie no end of embarrassment. His father and Abby's father had both been peddlers, and he saw no shame in it. The breeding and raising of pigeons as a business was a popular one in the 1800s. Young pigeons were called squab. They were considered a delicacy and were in demand both at restaurants and at meat markets. Andrew, after ridding himself of his only horse the year before, took the bar, took the bar loft and turned the east end of it, above a window, into a pigeon coop. An article from Mother Earth News says the following. A point to remember is that it is just about as easy to raise twice the number of squab you will want for your family as it is to raise barely enough. You can then easily sell the surplus to cover all your costs. First-class hotels and restaurants are always in the market for squabs. Or you can swap the surplus with neighbors for things they raise and, don't, and you don't. The timing of when young pigeons were considered squabs is important to note. The USDA's definition for squab is a young pigeon that is marketed just before it is ready to leave the nest, usually from 25 to 28 days of age, when it weighs from 12 to 24 ounces. Most people raising squab made sure there, there were several males and females in one coop to keep the eggs coming at different intervals, thus supplying the breeder with meat every 25 to 28 days or month. In April, a break-in at the barn occurred that is also the month Andrew Borden found it necessary to buy a new hatchet, a large one with a five-inch blade and claw head at the back. He took it over to his farm in Swansea and handed it to Mr. Frank Eddy, the foreman there, for 16 years to have it sharpened. Mr. Eddy, on August 11, 1982, during the police investigation in the early days after the murder, reported to Detective George, I think 1892, misprint. <laughs> Okay, so let's try that again. Mr. Eddy, on August 11th, 1892, during the police investigation in the early days after the murder, reported to Detective George F. Seaver, I have seen axes and hatches at Mr. Borden's. The large hatchet was comparatively new. When it was bought, it was brought over here and ground sharp. After being ground, Mr. Borden was here, and it was carried out and put on the wall by the gate for him to carry home. When he went away, he said, I won't take the hatchet. 
you'll be coming over in a day or two, and you can bring it over, which I did. The fact that Andrew told the farmer to, to bring it when he came, it made intimate intimate that this way Lizzie couldn't steal it again. He left it with Mr. Eddie. Bridget testified that she hadn't seen Lizzie go to the barn since the horse was taken away the year before. That Lizzie did visit the barn when the horse was in residence is another testimony to her love of animals that followed her throughout her lifetime. She may have seen the removal of the horse as a thoughtless gesture from a father she was beginning to see as the enemy. When the pigeon coop was installed, Andrew, a man nearing 70, may have given her the job of climbing the steep barn steps to the loft to feed and care for the birds. It may have been a way to mollify her after getting rid of the horse. Horse cars ran near 2nd Street during that time, and electric streetcars had just begun to make an appearance in Fall River. Andrew probably felt the, the expense of harboring a horse unnecessary. It is possible the horse was removed to the Swansea farm. If Lizzie had begun tenderly caring, caring for the birds, she may have been horrified to find them beheaded by a hatchet sometime in the spring. When Andrew explained the birds were a business, not pets, she would have realized the beheading would be happening every time the helpless things were of age, about once a month. Lizzie may have stolen the hatchet Andrew was using in the barn, and for good measure, hidden, and for good measure, hidden the others that were in the cellar. Alfred Johnson, the young Swede who was in charge of the lower farm at Swansea, told Detective Seaver in August 1892 that he has worked for Mr. Borden for nine years, have done, have done his work at the house cutting wood and cleaning up the yard when not busy at the farm. I think the last two times I cut wood was early in the spring and again just before planting. Mr. Borden had two axes, a single hatchet and a shop or bench hatchet. The bench hatchet has never been used much since it was sharpened. I ground it over here to the I grounded over here to the farm in early spring. The hatchets and axes were always kept in one place, in a box in the wood room at the left of the furnace. Never found them in any other place, and always put them back after using them. As Mr. Borden, particular about having one place for old tools. When I have been working for Mr. Borden, I have stayed there. It is unclear when Andrew first realized the hatchet was missing. He kept the barn locked at night and had the key with him on his extensive key ring, while obviously knowing the barn had been broken into in April. He may not have realized the hatchet was missing until it came time again to dispatch, uh, to dispatch the birds, which would have been sometime in May. If Alfred arrived to do some work at the house just before planting, which was probably May in Massachusetts, he may have gone to the cellar for a hatchet to chop wood and found the box where they were kept empty. He would have asked Bridget if she knew where they were, and after looking, she perhaps mentioned it to Miss Emma. In Emma's inquest testimony a few days after the murder, she was asked by Attorney Knowlton concerning the cellar. Knowlton. A short-handed hatchet was found there, later after the murders. Do you know anything about that? Emma. No, sir. Knowlton. Do you know whether your father kept such an instrument? Emma. I know the farmer used to come over and cut up wood. I suppose he had something to do with it. Knowlton. Whether any such instrument had been previously kept there, you don't know? Emma. No, sir. I never saw one. But there must have been one. Knowlton. Assume, okay, assume there were three found. Yes, sir. I think I've seen a hatchet down there in the wood room. I am quite sure I have. Knowlton. When do you think you saw whatever you did see there? Emma. I should say it might have been several months before the August murders that I had been in the woodroom before any, for anything. Knowlton, you don't know of anything being done with an axe or a hatchet that would cause blood to come to come on it, do you? Emma, not unless father killed pigeons with them. I don't know whether he did or not. You did not see him kill the pigeons? No, sir. Emma tries to dodge the subject of the hatchets, only to admit she had been in the woodroom in the cellar several months before August. That tallies nicely with Alfred being there in May to chop wood. It is hard to believe Emma would need anything in that dark and dirty wood room. She may, indeed, have been looking for the missing hatchets for Alfred Johnson's use. Andrew Borden could be an obtuse man when it came to relationships. While he had a mind for business, dealing with women's emotions and drama was so outside his wheelhouse. He may as well have come from Pluto. Yet here he was living in an old female home, where hormones and spells swirl like the falls for which the city was named. 
Rather than confront Lizzie about the missing barn hatchet, he handled it in the same way he had left a silent message with the key on the sitting room mantle. He fought back, not with words, but with actions. Knowlton, did you have any occasion to use the axe or hatchet, Lizzie? During inquest testimony, August 10th. No, sir. No, no sir. Knowlton, did you know where they were? Lizzie, I knew there was an old axe down cellar. That's all I know. The last time I saw it, it was stuck in an old chopping block. Knowlton, when was the last you knew of it? When our farmer came to chop wood. When was that? Lizzie, I think a year ago last winter. I think there was so much wood on hand, he did not come last winter. Knowlton, do you know of anything that would occasion the use of an axe or hatchet? No, sir. Knowlton, assume they had blood on them. Can you give any occasion for there being blood on them? Lizzie, no, sir. Knowlton, can you tell of any killing or anim of an animal or any other operation that would lead to blood on them? Lizzie, no, sir. He killed some pigeons in the barn last May or June. Knowlton, what with? I don't know, but I thought he, but I thought he wrung their necks. Knowlton, what made you think so? Lizzie, I think he said so. Knowlton, did anything else make you think so? Lizzie, all but three or four had their heads on. That's what made me think so. Knowlton, did all of them come into the house? Lizzie, I don't, I think so. Knowlton, those that came into the house were headless? Lizzie, two or three had them on. Knowlton, were any of their heads off? Lizzie, yes, sir. Knowlton, cut off or twisted off? I don't know which, she said. How did they look? Lizzie, I don't know. Their heads were gone. That's all. Knowlton, did you tell anybody they looked as though they were twisted off? I don't remember, Lizzie, I don't remember what I did or not. The skin, I think, was very tender. I said, why are, why, why are these heads off? I think I remember telling somebody that that he said they twisted off. Knowlton, did it look as if they were cut off? Lizzie, I don't know. I did not look at that, you know, particularly. In the same dysfunctional way, Andrew had left a small key on the mantle. So his talking, his twisting off the heads of the birds when this hatchet was taken, shows the fiery board and trait at Iron Will. He knows that Lizzie was responsible for the theft of Abby's things the year before. It may have been at that time he installed a sliding bolt between the shared door to his bedroom and Lizzie's. Her erratic behavior had taken a toll. He would not be victimized by his daughter. He would fight back. That Lizzie was made of the same unwieldy will as Andrews was undoing. I'm sorry. <laughs> unyielding will was Andrews undoing. In May, three months before the murders, a dressmaker made her appearance on the scene. One whose testimony concerning an important dress she made for Lizzie would be of great interest. Mrs. Jennings, Lizzie's attorney, during the Superior Court trial in June of 1893, one year after the murders. What is your name? Raymond. Mary A. Raymond. Jennings. What is your business? Dressmaker. Jennings. Where do you live? Raymond. 31 Franklin Avenue. Jennings. Ball River? Raymond. Yes. Jennings. Have you done dressmaking for Miss Lizzie Borden for a number of years? Raymond. Yes, sir. Jennings. How many? Raymond, 10 at the house, 10 at my home. Jennings, what portion of that time, if any, have you also done dressmaking for Mrs. Borden and Miss Emma? Raymond, I worked for Mrs. Borden, not for Miss Emma, for Mrs. Borden during that time. Jennings, where did you do the work for Mrs. Borden? Raymond, in the same room I did Miss Lizzie's. Jennings, did you make any dresses for Miss Lizzie last spring, 1892? Raymond, I did. Jennings, did you remember at that time making a bed for cord dress? Raymond, yes, sir. Jennings, before I pass to that, I will ask you what time you went there. Raymond, in May. Jennings, what time in May? Raymond, the first week in May. I was there three weeks. Jennings, and do you remember in what order the dresses were made as to when this bed for cord dress was made? Raymond, I made that first one. Jennings, why? Raymond, well, she needed it. Needed it to wear and had it made first. Jennings, how long did it take to make? Raymond, I couldn't tell the exact time, but I should think three days. Emma, who helped with the sewing, Emma, who helped with the sewing, said it took two days. Jennings, can you describe the dress? Raymond, 
It was light blue with a dark figure. Jennings, how light a blue? Raymond, well, quite a light blue. Jennings, what they call a baby blue? Raymond, no, I think not. Not as light as a baby blue. Jennings, do you, do you remember what the figure was upon? Raymond, I can't remember the shape of the figure. It was a dark figure. Jennings, in what matter was it made? Raymond, it was made of blouse waist and a full skirt, straight whiz. Jennings, how was it How was it to the sleeves? Raymond, the sleeves were full sleeves, large sleeves. Jennings, how was it as if, how, how was it as to the length? Raymond, longer than she usually had them. Jennings, how did the length compare with those of her other dresses made for her at that time? Raymond, well, I should certainly say that it was half a finger longer, two inches longer. Jennings, did you make a pink wrapper for her at this time? Raymond, I made a pink striped wrapper. Jennings, was this dress longer or shorter than that? Raymond, I should think longer. Now, what was the material of which the bed for cord was made? Raymond, why, it was a bed for cord. That was the name of the material. It was cotton, a cheap cotton dress, trimmed with a ruffle around the bottom. Jennings, a ruffle of what? Raymond, of the same. Keep in mind the order the dresses were made. It may have been for another reason than simply needing something new to wear. Okay. During the Superior Court trial in 1893, Officer Phil Harrington was asked to describe the dress Lizzie had on when he interviewed her in her room the afternoon of the murders. Harrington. It was a house wrap, a striped house wrap, with a pink and light stripe alternating. Pink was the most prominent color. On the light ground stripe was a diamond figure formed by narrow stripes, some of which ran diagonally or biased to the stripe and others parallel with it. The sides were tailor-fitted or fitted to the form. The front from the, front from the waist to the neck was loose in, in, in the folds. The collar was standing pleated on the sides and, clo and closely sheared in front. On either side, directly over the hips, was caught a narrow bright red ribbon, perhaps three-fourths of an inch in width. This was brought around in front, tied in a bow, and allowed to drop, with the ends hanging in, hanging a little, bow, a little below the bow. It was cut in, in semi-train or belt skirt, which the ladies were wearing that season. Officer Harrington's description brought some twitters from the female spectators in the courtroom and some sarcasm from the prosecution team as to his overt knowledge of these fashions. The Boston Record had this summation of Harrington's testimony. If Officer Phil Harrington of the Fall River Police ever loses his job, he ought to have no difficulty in getting a situation in, <laughs> in, in a dress store or as a reporter on a society journal. His description of the dress that Lizzie Borden wore the day of the murder was so elaborate in detail as to arouse the suspicion that it was carefully prepared beforehand. It is a pity, in the interest of justice, that he and his brother officers of the Fall River Police, of the Fall River Police, were not so observant of other details on that fatal morning as he was of Lizzie Borden's apparel. His knowledge of the details of a woman's costume is painfully accurate, even for a policeman. The description of the dress Lizzie wore the morning of the murders before she changed into the pink wrapper at noon that day did not fare as well in the detail department. Witnesses' accounts of what she wore were vague and in some cases non-existent. During Lizzie's inquest testimony on August 9, 1892, only five days after the murders, she was asked by attorney Hosea Knowlton, the district attorney, what did you wear the day of the murders? Lizzie, I had on a navy I had on a navy blue sort of bengaling silk skirt with a navy blue blouse. In the afternoon, they thought I had better change. I put on a pink wrapper. Note the name of the person who told her to change is not mentioned. It is, a, it is an ambiguous they. Alice Russell testified that she did not tell Lizzie to change and did not hear anyone else instruct her to do so. Dr. Seabury Bowen testified he suggested Lizzie go upstairs after the crowd out front was becoming overwhelming. Their shouts and conversation were, no doubt, coming in through the dining room windows. Even if Bridget had them closed after washing them a little over an hour earlier, the chaos would have been heard from within the house. It is interesting to note only two people during the trial testimony agreed with Lizzie on the color of the dress she wore that morning. 
What dress did Lizzie have on? Dr. Bowen stated Lizzie's dress that morning was sort of drab. Not much color to attract any attention. A sort of morning calico, a common dress that I did not notice specifically. I should call it dark blue. Mrs. Phoebe Bowen, his wife, dark blue with a, blue, with a blouse waist. A white spray design on it, a round figure of a flower. A round figure of flower. The other witnesses described the color differently. Bridget Sullivan, the maid, it was a blue dress with a sprig on with a sprig on it. Light blue. It the sprig was a darker blue. I think that the under part was. In previous testimonies, Bridget, Bridget said she did not notice what dress Lizzie wore that morning. Yet she recalled what she was wearing the day before the murders, Wednesday, vividly. Light blue wrapper on her, short, misspelled, probably skirt, and basque. Basque was a blouse waist. Officer Patrick Doherty, I thought. Okay, sorry. Officer Patrick Doherty, I thought she had a light blue dress with bosom in the waist or something like a bosom. I thought there was a small figure on the dress, a little spot-like. Mrs. Churchill recalled a light blue and white ground with a darker figure, the shape of a diamond, box pleat, and loose in the front. Alice Russell, in her usual flustered dialogue, could recall nothing about the dress, even though Lizzie laid with her head on Alice's shoulder during the morning of the murders. Was found administered to throughout the hour, throughout the early hours, her hands rubbed, forehead bathed, and helped to sit down. Alice did remember the bottom of Lizzie's blouse waist was open, and she tried to unhook it further to allow Lizzie to breathe. Lizzie stopped her, saying, I am not faint. Only the Bowen's elaborate Lizzie's description of a dark blue dress, Lizzie described it as navy blue. She also said it was, it was a bengaling silk, which is a rib cotton fabric threaded with silk to give it a sheen. It differs from a calico or cheap cotton that has no ribbing. Bengaling fabric is a thick grain taffeta. It is a durable plain weave fabric characterized widthwise by, by I'm sorry by widthwise cords formed by using fine warp yarns and coarse whiff yarns. Bengaling was first made of silk in Bengal, India. Calico is an unbleached cotton, often showing small husks. It was a cheap material and popular in the 1800s due to its ease in receiving dyes and patterns. That Bowen aided Lizzie and cared about her was obvious. He and his wife had known her and the family for 20 years, both as neighbors and as a family physician. He even accompanied Lizzie for the Catholic Central Congregation Church when her parents were summering in the Swansea, although he was himself Baptist. It resulted in the Fall River Hens having a cluck fest. Perhaps Dr. Bowen was merely mimicking what his wife had told him of Lizzie's dress. Within the seclusion of their own walls, it would not be the first time he took credit for something she witnessed. The fact that Bridget described her own dress that faithful morning as a dark indigo blue calico skirt and blouse with a white clover leaf background is interesting. Perhaps Phoebe Bowen confused Bridget's dress and Lizzie's during the excitement. Later that day, Bridget changed to a light blue gingham dress with two white borders run running around the bottom portion of the skirt. The reason Lizzie was in a hurry to change out of the dress she was wearing that morning will become clear later. The innocent view is a wrapper. The innocent view as a wrapper was much less restricting, something that the Victorian women looked for in everyday house dresses and tea gowns. The ubiquitous corset they were forced to wear was, dif was difficult enough without being pinned in by more hooks and unyielding fabrics. Lizzie's father had announced he would be having the house painted in May. Whether Lizzie offered to choose the color in an uncharacteristic move on her behalf, or Andrew asked for her assistance in an effort to lessen the tension that had accumulated inside the house between Lizzie and Abby and himself, we don't know. As a, tra as a transparent olive branch, in an obvious effort to placate her, Lizzie would still have seen the offer's perfect timing. Lizzie was a voracious reader. One of her excursions between the pages had trumpeted the death caused by a dye called emerald green. This popular color of 1800s was derived from mixing ver ver verdigris in vinegar and warm water. Arsenic was then added to achieve the green color. When reacting with the copper particles, it, it achieved a brilliance unlike previous greens, replacing the popular shields 
and Paris green pigment. At the peak of its popularity, people began dying. It was found the flocked emerald green wallpaper was releasing the arsenic into the air. Women wearing silk ball grounds created by the green dye were absorbing the poison into their skin. Even fake flowers dyed with the Paris green were in, were in affecting house, I'm sorry, were infecting households. It made headlines, and Lizzie took notice. One second here. Lizzie accepted the offer to choose the color, or volunteered to do so, and moved forward to oversee the painting of a house she detested. On May 9, 1892, only three months before the murders, John, John Gerard arrived at the Borden home to begin preparing the paint color Lizzie had chosen, drab. Drab was the name of a green paint a medium you found on a palette of Victorian color choices. John Gerard testified during the Superior Court trial concerning his interaction with Lizzie Borden during the time he was hired to paint the Borden residence at 92 2nd Street. Jennings, can you tell when you took the paint up there, Mr. Gerard? Gerard, the 9th of May. Jennings, did you see Miss Lizzie Borden there on or about that time? Gerard, not that day, the next morning early in the backyard near the barn. Where was your paint? In the barn. Jennings, what was it in? Tubs, pots, etc. Jennings, now won't you tell us what was done by you and she at that time in regard to paint? Gerard, the color was not satisfactory that we had mixed it in the tub, and so I made the color to suit, to suit her. Jennings, was she about the premises? Gerard, oh yes, she was, and I mixed the colors to get satisfactory color. Of course, I mixed the color in a large tub. Jennings, will you state what part of the barn the tub's paint were in? What tubs of paint were in? Gerard, well, near the door, the south door. Jennings, and was she during any portion of that time in the immediate vicinity of those tubs or not? Gerard, I think she was. Jennings, did you paint the house? Gerard, we did, the next morning of the 10th outside. Dark drab, the, dark drab, the trim was darker drab. Jennings, do you remember whether or not any tests were made from time to time? by you and her in regard to the appearance of the paint when you were mixing it? Gerard, well, the paint was carried there on the afternoon of the 9th, and her father said that she was to select the color, and I better not go on with it until the color was determined, and she not being present. It was delayed until the next morning. That evening, she came to my house and said the color was not just what she wanted. Jennings, she came to your house in consensus of what she said to you. An appointment was made for the next morning. Gerard, the next morning early before the men came to go to work. That was about six o'clock in the morning. I mixed the colors then, you know, then satisfactorily. Jennings, she was there at that time? Gerard, yes, sir. Jennings, you painted the steps and everything connected with the house, I presume? Gerard, yes, sir. Knowlton, during cross-examination. Where were the paints in the barn, near the door or in the stall? Gerard. Well, probably partially. There was two tubs, one dark and one light color. Knowlton. Well, don't you remember whether they were in the stall or not? Well, one color may have been, but one color was near the door. Knowlton. You did all the mixing? Gerard. Yes, sir. Knowlton. Who else besides you did it? Gerard. Well, I directed the mixing of it. Knowlton. Well, either you or some of you men did all the mixing. Gerard. Yes, sir. Knowlton. Well, she looked on and saw it done. Gerard, yes, sir. Jennings, on redirect. After it was mixed, did you take it out and try it on the, at the house? Gerard, yes, sir, on the corner of the house near the back steps. Jennings, in consultation with her? Gerard, yes, sir. Jennings, so as to show how it looked on the house? Gerard, yes, sir. Shortly after Mary Raymond completed the sewing, of Lizzie's Bedford Court dress, Lizzie may have accidentally brushed against the back steps railing on her way to the backyard one afternoon while the paint was still wet. The painters had gone for the day. Without warning, uh, without warning the household of the hazard waiting outside the back entry door. Oh, without warning the household of the hazard waiting, I'm sorry. Or perhaps they had. It had ruined the lower part of her skirt and beneath the ruffle. As she descended the steps, her skirt caught up in her right hand. 
Good enough for mornings around the house for now. The cheap cotton was at least a cooler option than her fancier dresses. Later, it would be suitable for some safe scraps and burning. During the Superior Court trial in June of 1893, Lizzie's attorney, Andrew Jennings, questioned Mary Raymond, the dressmaker who was at the board residence for the two weeks in May in 1892. Mr. Jennings, do you remember at the time you were there, they were painting the house and did the paint and, and, and did they or, or, or did paint the house? Raymond, they did paint the house at that time. Yes, sir. Jennings, do you know anything about whether at that time there was any paint got upon the dress? There was Jennings. There, there was. Raymond, there was. Jennings, how soon after it was made did Miss Lizzie begin to wear it? Raymond, just as soon as it was finished. Jennings, and how soon after that, as you recollect, that she got paint upon it? Raymond, I can't tell you that. I don't remember. Jennings, was it while you were there? Raymond, oh, yes. Let's see. Mrs. Raymond was there the first week of May and stayed three weeks. The painters began work on May 10th and were there three weeks, a little longer than the dressmaker. Jennings, where was the paint, if you recollect? Raymond, it was on the front of the dress and around the bottom of the dress, around the ruffle and underneath part of the hem. Chapter 5, All Around the Town. The months of April and May of 1892 have been busy ones in the Borden Murders Count Town. I got a fly, how fun. In April, pigeons are beheaded. The barn is broken into, and something was taken from it, and Andrew finds the need to buy a new hatchet and put it in safekeeping of his farm foreman. May, Ram, May ramps up with, with, with several occurrences. A blue Bedford cord dress is made, only to become stained with paint immediately after, and the board and barn is broken into again. During the time, paints are being mixed there. Pigeons are once again beheaded and cruelly showcased on the family kitchen table. And Uncle John Vinicum Morris returns for another visit, this time to ride with Andrew Borden over to the Swansea farm and talk about future plans. Attorney Knowlton, during the preliminary trial, August 25th, September 1st, 1892. Did he say anything about his farm, about giving that away? John Morris. We were going over. That was sometime in May of this year. We were riding over by his place. We got to speaking about the old lady's home. You know, he says. I would give them some. I would give them some land here if I thought they would accept it. But something to that effect. Knowlton. Nothing about a will then. Morris. No, sir. Knowlton. About giving it to them. Morris. Yes, sir. That's all. John Morris's testimony came after much probing by Attorney Knowlton. It was obvious John did not want to talk about the farm or the plans for it. Knowlton. Did Andrew Borden ever tell you about any bequest he had notion of making? Morris, I think he said something about making. He did not say how or anything like that. Knowlton, whether he did say anything to you about or any purpose. Morris, I think some, sometime he made a remark about a bequest. Knowlton, when was that? Morris, I think somewhere within a year. Knowlton, where were you at the time? Morris, I think on South Main Street. Knowlton, what, what doing walking, what doing, walking together? Morris, just walking along. Knowlton. What was it, he said. That's all he said. Knowlton. What? Morris. Something about some bequests that he would make. He did not say what they were, or anything about it. Something about giving something away and bequest to somebody. He did not say who. Something about these bequests that he, he did not say anything more about it. Knowlton. What did he say? Morris. He did not know but he might make some public request words to that effect. Knowlton, would you tell me what he said? Morris, he talked like he was going to make some public request, just in that way. Knowlton, that was sometime within a year. Morris, yes, sir. Knowlton, can you fix the time any better than that? Morris, I could not. In the testimony above, as John is pushed to state what the bequests were, he suddenly switches to the words public bequests in an effort to distance the topic from a closer recipient. John's tap dance concerning Andrew's will and its contents was witnessed earlier during the coroner's inquest, five days after the murders. He is still vague as to when certain conversations took place. Knowlton, Attorney Hosea Knowlton, DA. Did he ever talk with you about a will? Morris, yes, sir, he has. Knowlton, when was the last time? Morris, somewhere within a year. 
Knowlton, were you in the house? Morris, no, sir. I think we were outside at the time. Knowlton, what was the talk? Morris, he said he thought he should make some bequests outside to charitable purposes. He did not say any more either one way or the other. Knowlton, did he talk as though he was intending to make a will? Morris, I judged from that that he was intending to. I drew my conclusions that he had not, but I was thinking of it. Knowlton, did he mention the request out, outside he thought he should make? Morris, he did not. Knowlton, how came he to be speaking about it? Morris, common conversation, I suppose same as about his land. Before he bought the birch land, I was down there with him. He says, let's go up to Main Street. We went up. He says, here is a piece of property. Don't say anything about it. I have a chance to buy. Don't say anything about it. I have a chance to buy. What is your opinion about it? I asked what it could be bought for. I didn't know he told me direct, but about. I says, I think it is a good property in the heart of the city. The city will be coming towards it all the time. I believe it would be a good investment. Several months afterwards, on Sunday, one Sunday, he says, John, I did as you told me. I says, what's that? I forgot all about it. I bought the, birch, the, I bought the birch land. Knowlton. I wish you would recall the conversation about the will as explicitly as you have this. Morse. That is all he said about the will. He thought of making some bequests out, you know, for charitable purposes. His farm over there, he was talking about the old lady's home. I don't know, but I, I would give them this if they would take it. Knowlton. Was that the same talk? Morris. I don't think it was the same time. Nolden, did he talk to you any other time about a will? Morris, years ago, out west at my place one time. He said he had a will. Several years ago, he told me he had destroyed it. Nolden, how long ago did he tell you he had destroyed it? Morris, 15 years ago. Nolden, did he tell you anything about the contents of the will? Morris, he did not. The timing here is interesting. When Lizzie was asked about Andrew's property during an inquest testimony, she mentions the Birchland stating a short time ago he bought some real estate that belonged to a Mr. Birch. John says several months after the conversation about the Birch property with Andrew, Andrew tells him he did indeed purchase it. Andrew bought the Birchland May 22, 1892. The talk about the old lady's home happened in May when John and Andrew drove over the Swansea farm. John had only managed to say the original Birchland conversation and other bequests is within a year. John says Andrew told him several months after he mentioned thinking of buying it that he had bought it. Was it several months earlier it was mentioned? Or originally, was it possible this elusive time was in April? A visit he has not alluded to. We first hear about the pigeons in April during the first barn break-in. Was John there around the 1st of April? Does evasiveness concerning when his conversation occurred with Andrew about bequests and the Birchland have something to do with not wanting to mention April? In case he was asked if anything out of the ordinary happened while he was visiting Andrew, would a barn break in and a stolen hatchet be a subject to avoid? Did Lizzie overhear any of the conversations concerning the Swansea farm and bequests? It is interesting that the two big discussions concerning Andrew's will and bequests happened on South Main Street and at the farm, away from listening years. The Birch Street purchase was not a small one. Andrew bought the the area for $23,000. That's $400,000 in today's dollars. His plan was to erect a substantial brick building at the corner of Spring and South Main, comparable to his, to his large Andrew J. Borden building farther north on Main Street. He told the Fall River Daily Globe reporter, I could secure tenants readily for two floors, but it wouldn't be just the thing in my mind to leave the third floor a hall or, 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 or dancing purposes. Second Street would eventually become an overflow business highway, but it won't be in my time. I don't like to move off the street in my lifetime, and dances wouldn't be just the thing I'd want around me in my sleep. Andrew says he has no intention of moving off Second Street in his lifetime, something Lizzie and Emma contradict in later interviews. When John Morris is questioned by Attorney Knowlton at the inquest and in the preliminary hearing, he confesses to only three dates leading up to the murders, that he was with Andrew prior to his visit the day before Abby and Andrew were killed. He says he is there. He says he is there at May, the end of June, and the middle of July. The murders occurred on August 4th. 
John is suddenly with Andrew every month, talking over the strange bequest to the old lady's home. The Swansea upper farm area was large, over 220 acres, and was a huge acreage with cattle, other livestock, crops, and various income-producing commodities. Mr. Eddie managed his farm. On a separate parcel was a lower farm with a board in summer, and Lizzie spent time fishing with her father in Coles River just down the slope. An 1895 map shows Andrew owned two estates on this parcel along Gardner's Neck Road, one of which is still standing, the summer home. Albert Johnson was the overseer here. Whenever John Morris is interviewed about Swansea, he never says the lower farm or the upper farm. He simply says the farm. This is convenient if you look closely. John says his farm over there, he was talking about the old lady's home. The other public request conversation is cloaked in secrecy. Not just the contents, but the date the conversation occurred. What if John wasn't talking about one farm or the other, the upper farm or lower farm, but both farms? The old lady's home, according to the author's belief, was the nickname he and Andrew came up with for the lower farm where the family spent their summers. This was not the income-producing farm, but a beautiful home near the river. This may have been slated to be set aside for Abby, her mother, half-sister, and another elderly woman who were without support in the Borden family. Some of these in the Borden slash Morris lineage were John's Aunt Catherine Baudry, Boudry, sorry, the, el the elderly Mrs. Vinicum, Abby's friend, Mrs. Mary Morris, the widow in Fall River, and possibly for the other, Aunt Mary Morris, who lived in Warren and whose husband was already 82. This couple had two spinster daughters, Elizabeth and Henrietta, in their 40s and 50s. It would be a secure place for the women to live out their days in peace when the time came. Without worry about rent or companionship, Andrew was turning 70. His time was getting short by 1892 standards. Okay. Lizzie and Emma had stopped joining Andrew and Abby at the annual summer vacations at the lower farm five years earlier when the Cold War began between Andrew's daughters and his wife. Lizzie's own testimony admits she has not been to the farm in five years. Why leave this home that Abby loved and treasured her, her vacation time there to two daughters who had turned her backs on it? That brings us to the upper farm and the epicenter of the storm. This was set up for cattle, horses, and crops. That there were already cattle there is witnessed by John Morris coming over to the farm the night before the murders and Mr. Eddie asking him about the two oxen. Morris admits during his inquest testimony that on the morning of the murders, following breakfast, that we went out in the sitting room from the dining room. Mr. Borden and I talked about some cattle I had, and then I went away. Why was John talking about cattle he had? His sole reason for coming to Fall River that day before the murders was to pick up two oxen for William Davis, who ran a butcher, a butcher and horse training business in South Dartmouth. John lived with the Davises and helped with the logistics of running it. Thursday morning, the day of the murders, John wrote to William Vinicum in Swansea, whom he had just visited for supper the day before about some cattle. Vinicum was related to John through his maternal grandmother's side. John also just brought 80 Mustang horses in from Iowa. There were other players in this dangerous chess game, as we will soon find out, who also had an interest in the upper farm, a business deal so far-reaching that it may, it may as well have been called all in, one, all in the family. Andrew may have been contemplating needing not one, but both of the farms under Abby's name, one for the old lady's home, lower farm, and one for the upper farm, with John Morris actually running a huge cattle and horse trading operation, and it was all about to explode. By the summer months of 1892, there was much activity concerning the upper farm at Swansea. John Morris was spinning more plates than an accomplished circus act. But at some point, there's usually the sound of crashing glass. On John Morris's visit to Fall River at the end of June, he brought with him William Davis's daughter, Alice. Alice was 17 years old and had known John most of her life. He lived with their family many years before and was now back living with them in South Dartmouth and helping with her father and grandfather's meat business. The butcher trade was also one involving horse trading and cattle, an area in which John V. Morris was well acquainted. According to John Morris's inquest testimony about his June visit, he said he came over in the morning and went back at night. I, I can tell about that time if, if you want me to. There was a lady 
came over Mr. Davis's daughter with me. We drove over in the afternoon. I hired a horse, and Mr. Borden's daughter went to ride. We went down to the steamboat. I took her home after dark. In one paragraph, John Morris contradicts himself. He first said he came over in the morning, only to say two sentences later. We drove over in the afternoon. I believe both are correct. John was an early riser, as most farmers are. When at the Bordens, he was up by six. It is possible he drove Alice, Alice Davis over to the Swansea farm first to show it to her. As we will see, it's hot in here. John was showing the farm to another young woman. Was he shopping for a future housekeeper for the lower farm homestead? One to help with the old lady's farm? Or was there another farmhouse up Gardner's Neck Road, shown on the map at the top page? Okay, 74. That is no longer standing. About the 10th of July, John was back. I did not stay but a short time, John testified. I was there. I was here overnight, but I went down to an aunt's on the Stafford Road that time. Catherine Brudery, Catherine Brudery is John's mother, Brody's sister. He testified he did not see Lizzie during the visit. During this July return to Fall River, John took a detour to Warren, Rhode Island, where he picked up his niece, Annie Morris. Annie was questioned by a Fall River Herald reporter the day of the murders concerning her uncle, John Morris. At the time of the interview, Annie and her brother, William, were staying with, Daniel, with the Daniel Emery family on Way Boston Street, a mile from the Borden's house. She was vacationing there from her home in Minnesota. Her father, William Morris, is John's brother. The Fall River Herald, August 4th, 1892. Morris's niece was asked if she could ever if she had ever seen her uncle John before, and replied that she had. She had met him when she was five years old, and three weeks ago, when he had taken her from the cars at Warren to the Borden from the Taking her from, from the cars at Warren to the Borden farm. When Morris is asked about his niece during the inquest testimony, his answer is quite different. Attorney Knowlton, did you see the relatives you went there to see, referring to John's visit to Daniel Emery's home in the morning of the murders? Morris, I saw one. The young man was out. I did not see him. Knowlton, what was the young woman's name? Annie Morris. She was indisposed while I was there. She was on the lounge part of the, of the time. She is my brother's daughter, Knowlton. Did she come from the same part of the West you lived? Morris. She belonged up in Minnesota. I went there first. Knowlton. The first you heard of her being there was from Mr. Borden? Andrew Borden told him the night before the murders. Okay, Morris had testified that Andrew Borden told him the night before the murders to go over to the, Emory, to the Emory's to see his relatives who were stopping there. Morris. No, I was at her grandmother's. They told me she was there and had gone to Providence with one of her cousins. When I got off the cars, they got on. I just barely saw her. John's need to lie about something as innocent as giving his young niece, Annie, Annie was 19 at the time, a ride to see the Borden farm is strange, to say the least. It smacks of secrecy. Was Annie being shown the farmhouse as a possible housekeeper for a future business concern as well? During John's July visit, he and Andrew drove over to the Swansea farm. He was asked about it by Attorney Knowlton during his inquest testimony. Morris, Mr. Borden, when I was over, when, when I was over here sometime in July, that I speak of, wanted to know if I knew a man, he could get on his farm to take charge of it. I told him I did not know. I would see. When I got back to South Dartmouth, I wrote him. I, I wrote him. I knew of a man I thought would suit him. I would send, I would send the man over. He wrote back to me. He had read. He would rather I would wait until I saw him. I have his letter in my pocket. If you want to see it, witness produces the letter, dated July twenty fifth, eighteen ninety two. As we see, as we will see, John did send a man to see Andrew, when they thought Lizzie was safely away on her vacation to Marion. They had not expected her to return home unexpectedly Monday morning, August first. It was too late to warn John and the young man he had found to take charge of the Swansea farm. The New York Times, Fall River, Massachusetts, August 6, 1892. Some interesting clues were worked out by the police today relative to two mysterious visitors at the Borden homestead prior to the assassination of, of old Mr. and Mrs. Borden. No positive light was thrown on the mystery of the murders, however. 
Last Monday morning, about 9 o'clock, a horse and buggy turned into 2nd Street out of Spring and stopped in front of the Borden residence. A man who was employed nearby sat in his buggy almost opposite and facing south. He had ample opportunity and time to take a careful look at the vehicle and the circumstances of the two strange men calling at the Borden house. He made an impression on, on his mind, which he remembers distinctly. One of the men got out of the buggy and rang the doorbell. As he stood there, the observer saw him plainly and remembers that, the, that the, his description was that of a man about 25 years of age with a sallow complexion, soft hat, dark trousers, with a white, with a white strip of dark material running down the leg and russet or MS baseball shoes. He was about 5 feet 9 inches high. The shoes in particular attracted his attention, as they were of a peculiar make and color and were laced. Mr. Borden opened the door, and the man spoke a few words and was admitted. The man who remained in the buggy was not as closely scrutinized, and his description not so well remembered. The man who entered remained about ten minutes and then came out with his hat in his hand. The team was driven off in the direction of Pleasant Street. The circumstances is considered of importance when the fact is known that the police have in their possession knowledge of, only, of the only person who tells of having seen a strange man at the Borden house at the time of the murders. The mysterious caller was never identified by police. He came and went, shrouded in a cloak of mystery, leaving only one clue. He was wearing russet baseball shoes. The stranger appearing on Andrew Borden's doorstep the Monday before the murders was carefully chosen. He had to be someone Lizzie would not have recognized, and more importantly, he had to be a relative who would benefit from his connection with the Swansea farm. Andrew had asked John to find him a man to take charge of the farm, and John sent, sent one to him. His name was James Chatterton, and he was a professional baseball player for the Kansas City Cowboys and the Salem Fairies. In 1887, Jim is also listed in the baseball encyclopedia. For the first time ever, we find out who the mysterious man was ringing Andrew's doorbell three days before the murders. James Jim Chatterton was born in 1864 in Williamsburg, New York. He was about 28 in 1892. He was about 25 years of age. Okay, 18, I'm sorry. <laughs> he was 28 in 1892, and he was about 25 years of age. The witness said of the man he saw on Andrew's step that Monday, he married Mary Mage White, January 10, 1891, in Raymond, New Hampshire. In 1884-1887, he played for the Kansas City Cowboys and the Salem Ferries, respectively. In 1884, he was living in Lynn, Massachusetts, two hours from Fall River. He was the sole supporter of his widowed mother and his disabled older brother. He had another brother, Joseph, who was also living in Lynn and was 31. Their brother, William H. Chatterhorn, likewise, was living in Lynn and was 20 years old in 1892. Together, they worked with Joseph's wife's parents in a shoemaking business, each one with a different skill set, such as stitcher, stretcher, tanner, etc. James and Joseph's father was James Martin Chatterhorn. He was the brother of Elvira Chatterhorn, who married Charles E. Morris of Hoboken, New Jersey. Charles was a salesman in the jewelry business. James Martin Chatterhorn, Joseph, Jim Joseph and William's father, was John Vinicum, Morris' uncle, making the three boys John's cousins. Mouthful, huh? <laughs> Lizzie may not have been very familiar with this, with this side of the family who were living in New York. Jim traveled a lot in the baseball circuit and bounced around from one address to another. His baseball career had pretty much fizzled out. He was now a newlywed and living two hours from Fall River. John Morris may have felt it safe to send him to see Andrew to interview as a foreman for the Swansea farm, hoping Lizzie wouldn't recognize him if she did see him. At the time, Jim was sent to the Borden house. It was thought Lizzie was safely away in Marion and Emma in Fairhaven. She had materialized out of thin air. Okay, she had materialized out of thin air before they could call off Jim's visit to see Andrew. Was it a coincidence the Chattertons were in the family-run shoe business, requiring an ongoing supply of leather? Would that make a nice fit for a farm about to expand its cattle connections? And Jim's mother was a widow, who would later die in 1921 at the age of 84. Was she to be part of the old lady's home, even though she was only 55 in 1892? If Jim and his new wife moved into one of the two Swansea lower farmhouses, his mother may have needed a place as well, as he had been supporting her, perhaps an old lady's home. 
Jim was not the only one of his family to play a part in the mystery. It's just possible his brother, Joseph, had a role to carry out on the morning of the murders. Okay, guys, that's going to do it for today. We'll stop right there and continue next week, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. I'm glad you guys came to join me. I know <laughs> I'm stuttering over some of this stuff. It's a mouthful, and you know, a lot of this, this testimony is kind of jammed together, but uh, it's an interesting book. It's an interesting book nonetheless. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming today, and I appreciate you all. And tomorrow, again, um, Jim, hang on. Uh, Jim Matlock's going to be with us. I got to stretch. Jim Matlock's going to be with us. Uh, he was here previously, but the video feed wasn't that great. So uh, we're bringing him back in so he can tell us and we can actually hear him this time talk about past lives and things like that. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming. It's really hot in here. So I want to get a nice cold thing of water. Uh, and I will see you all tomorrow. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five people. We are equal opportunity here at California House Radio. If you're watching from YouTube, please subscribe. There's a little ghost down in the bottom right-hand corner with a magnifying glass and a Sherlock Holmes hat on, and that is our mascot. So if you click on him, that will make you a subscriber. And if you look there, we've got almost 260 videos of different topics, uh, not just paranormal. And I think you'll find some, there's something that, or there's something there for everybody. Okay, visit us at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com as well. We've got all these, we've got all these archives on there as well as some of the archives from Blog Talk Radio when we were there for so many, um, excuse me, for so many years. Anyway, thank you again for coming, and I will see you tomorrow at. Hang on a second, wrong button. I will see you tomorrow at six. 30 or 6 25 p.m. right usual time okay have a good day